Impact Voices. Brought to you by Impact Alpha. Hello and welcome to Impact Voices, your guide to the people, companies, and ideas that are transforming how capital is deployed in pursuit of a better, more sustainable world. I'm your host, Brian Walsh, head of Impact at LiquidNet, a progressive financial services company based in New York. And I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, David Bank, editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha, who's coming to us from San Francisco. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. And with me here in New York City is Imogen Rose Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. On today's show, we'll feature a conversation that David had with Erica Karp of Cornerstone Capital Group. But first, let's talk about what's happening with the German car manufacturer Volkswagen and its fall from grace. Imogen, just what has gone wrong with VW? So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it transpired that Volkswagen had been deliberately misleading regulators as to its emission standards by putting in place software which circumvented the emissions testing process, I believe. And that has caused a huge hit to the share price. It caused the CEO to be forced to resign and they're going to be facing ongoing litigation. So on the one hand, on the very base level, it clearly indicates the value of looking at ESG factors and the risks that can, can come up by not doing that. On the other hand, what you're seeing a lot of is people saying that this shows that social responsibility and CRI doesn't mean anything because in fact, VW was in the Dow Jones Sustainable Indices. It had received a lot of awards for its corporate responsibility and put a lot of time and effort into, at the very least, putting together a very thick corporate responsibility document. So this is kind of being seen as another instance of sort of greenwashing or goodwashing, if you like it. We saw this with BP. We saw it with Enron, companies that go out, make a big deal about all of the good things and the good actions that they're doing, but behind the scenes aren't necessarily walking the walk. And even more so are sort of using corporate responsibility specifically as kind of a shield for bad actions. And this is sort of being held up as a reason why social responsibility, ESG, doesn't work. David, is that what you're hearing as well? Well, yeah, this is maybe the first real sustainability scandal where the actual thing at issue is their emissions results. And, you know, obviously it can feed the cynicism of folks, as you say, that that kind of branding or that kind of messaging is really nothing but greenwashing. It doesn't, of course, take away from the need to actually walk the walk on sustainability, on better supply chain uh, processes, on better performance in your, you know, in your in your products to lower the environmental load, on 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 all kinds of social factors in your workforce and in your product line. So it doesn't actually change any of the fundamentals, but it could certainly change public perception. But David, wouldn't you say that the, the core breakdown here, while yes, it was about their emissions and how uh, the software that they had in their, their cars was essentially designed to trick the emissions testing. So yes, there is an environmental impact to this for sure. But wasn't the fundamental breakdown here one of governance and how the company was managed? 
Well, certainly. In fact, Imogen mentioned ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And that's the the current mantra of the sustainability movement for more reporting on those three categories. And a lot of folks will tell you the G for governance is the first among equals uh, in that if you have good governance, you will generally be able to drive good environmental and social performance. And if you don't have good governance, then the other two may or may not be true, as we've just seen. And is it now coming to light or hadn't it already been known, Imogen, that VW had some some complexities and some some unusual structures to how it was governed. You know, that is a very good point. And it's something that I think deserves more due diligence because there were structural issues going back with VW a couple of years to do with the deal with Porsche that caused a lot of concerns and actually themselves led to a lot of litigation. And, you know, I think it would be interesting to look at that and say, is there any correlation between the two? But, you know, I think that there is a secondary and potentially bigger question here of it's not enough, and it's not enough for the SRI community, and this is really important, just to listen to what the companies say. It's not enough to be sort of a passive, a master of information. In order for ESG to become meaningful and actionable, you know, there is a need on the part of the investment community and on the part of the research community to do their own due diligence. And so you're saying that it's not just a matter of taking a company's sustainability report at face value, right? That the right due diligence and the right research is needed. And when that is the case, then ESG can actually become a meaningful and actionable insight into the investment process. It's just like in financial reporting and financial analysis, good analysts dig deeper. They have their own sources. They have their own cross-checking. And uh, the environmental and social and governance factors should be should be no different. It's just that they've been considered sort of softer factors and not as as susceptible to sort of hard nosed analysis. But in fact, they're they're quite susceptible to hard nosed analysis. And Erica Karp, who I talked to recently, would say that it's all about asking those right questions and asking the tough questions and being able to sniff out the contradictions. That actually brings up a great point, David. Let's get to that conversation that you had with Erica Karp of Cornerstone Capital Group. Welcome, Erica. Thanks for joining us on Impact Voices. It's a pleasure to be here. I thank you for inviting me. Erica is the founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital Group. Uh, Now, you're a hard-nosed banker type. You spent many years at UBS and on Wall Street. Just tell us your journey from there to here. It really is a journey because I came to sustainability and impact investing very organically. All right, so 25 years, you know, the last uh, 15 prior, uh, looking after global research for UBS Investment Bank. And what you learn to some degree is the questions are as or more important than the answers. So I realized in taking on the management of a team that was referred to as the SRI team, I realized that I had always been asking these long-term structural questions to get to investment recommendations. And then I learned the language of ESG. So I believe that almost everything sits somewhere under the realm of environmental, social, and governance. Probably the one thing we we have to make sure we understand is that there are many things that are at the nexus of all 
of those or multiples. When you think about a healthcare, you know, it sits everywhere. So it is a convenient moniker, ESG, investing, but I would argue that one day we'll simply call sustainable or impact uh, or values-based investing, we'll just call it investing. And we'll just call sustainable finance finance. ESG bears a little bit of explaining for folks who haven't aren't familiar with that. As you said, it's environmental, social, and governance. And there's a whole body of knowledge now rising up around how to track that, how to measure it, how to report that. What does that body of evidence and, and the data to date show us about ESG signals or ESG performance? I think you can absolutely look at all aspects of environmental, social, and governance performance as a tool to get predictive insight. And so when we think about environmental issues, very broadly speaking, you know, the reality is different parts of that are relevant to different companies in different industries in different regions, right? So there's, again, there's no single data point that's going to be super critical and based upon which I would make a decision. But you can have a discussion with whether it's an energy company or a, or a consumer company or a bank on environmental issues. And you can do that without even using the word environmental if you want to. You can talk about sustainability never using that word. In fact, that's actually my preference. Let's use words about business and finance and economics. And let's ask about revenue sources and cost drivers and supply chains. And let's talk about margins. Let's talk about business. And you know what? If you talk about that, you are going to end up talking about things that touch environmental, social, and governance matters. You cannot avoid it. And by the way, I should add this. Among environmental, social, and governance factors, I would argue that the G is first among equals. Because if you get the governance right, then you cannot avoid looking at the huge material environmental and social issues that are affecting the economic outcomes of your company and of your industry and in the world that you participate in. I guess the question is, are those questions widely asked and are the answers widely understood? Because it seems kind of basic. Oh, that's a great question. So I would argue uh, and this goes to the founding of this company at Cornerstone, I would argue that the questions around material, environmental, social, and governance factors are not being asked as systematically. If they're not asked and answered systematically enough, then does it follow that an analyst or a, an investor who does ask them and try to answer them would have some kind of information edge in the marketplace, if the information about these questions not widely known, is that an alpha opportunity? I believe it is. I believe any information that adds to this, this insight, I talked about predictive insight. I believe that more information is good. It is better. It adds to the thought process. All right. So it is about transparency. Uh, on the corporate side, it's about disclosure of material factors, i.e. those that would be um, important to a decision to buy or sell. And so I believe that we're not there yet. We're early days. That's why organizations like the GRI or the Global Reporting Initiative or the SASB, this is the U.S. Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, these organizations are critically important because we do need to have better data. We do need to have standards for disclosure by corporations 
of the issues and items that are material, that matter. What matters to the economic outcomes? What matters to an informed investor? So, uh, yeah, we have, we have a lot of work still to do. And this is an important point that I'm going to make. I would argue that there are so many great investors out there, whether it's traditional asset managers, hedge fund managers, uh, this is now on the buy side, on the sell side also. I think there are so many analysts and investors that are already doing sustainable investing. They are already doing ESG analysis. They just don't know the language. They don't know that they're doing it. And the reason I believe that is because I am one of those people. I realized because I learned a new language when I took over managing a, a team of analysts that was doing socially responsible investing. The term SRI, I find it a little troublesome. That said, I think that I'm not alone in people who just needed a kind of a higher order of consciousness around their search for profit, but purpose at the same time. Let's give our listeners a little tutorial here in, in, in some of these questions. You guys put out a terrific uh, section of a report that BlackRock issued recently, I think in conjunction with the series called 21st Century Engagement, and it was strategies for incorporating ESG into, into investor decisions and corporate interactions. So let me just try some questions on you, and you can t- tell me why they're important questions. Oil, gas, and mining sector. Has the company modeled scenarios that include low-carbon public policies and impacts on supply and demand? It's a wildly important question. How can a company in that industry, in those broad sectors, not be thinking about scenarios? I mean, scenario analysis is where it's at. What are the risks? What are the rewards? What happens if? So if you're trying as a company to deliver returns on every dollar that you've been given to invest, if you are trying to, as an analyst, do a kind of a risk-adjusted reward um, analysis, how can you not look at various scenarios? It's a question of, of good governance, in my view. So you can ask a company about, okay, so what happens if we have uh, a U.S. energy policy that includes a price for carbon? Well, if the company chooses to say, ah, that's not going to happen, and we didn't do that, or if a company chooses to say, that's a really interesting question, here's how we've modeled it out, and this is what happens, this is what would happen, you know, at the current level of of capital expenditure, and this is what we would have to do in terms of our capital deployment if this were to play out. Well, when you get a, a robust answer like that, It gives you the sense that there's good governance and the management and the board of directors has been thinking about these. Well, that's a company that arguably will be more resilient in the face of uncertain economic outcomes and risks. So in, say, in insurance, how does the company factor in climate change into its enterprise risk management systems, actual aerial analysis, and underwriting? Now, do most insurance companies factor in climate change at that level and and in a comprehensive enough way? I think the insurance industry is a great example of being proactive. They have to be. They have to price all kinds of scenarios to be able to price their products and be underwriting properly. So I think insurance is a great example. And so the companies out there that are thinking about, you know, these scenarios, these are some of the thought leaders. It's a very important sector to look at. Now, 
environmental is sometimes easier to measure. The metrics are maybe clear. Social, as you've said, is sometimes trickier. Mm. Um, in banking, you ask, how does the bank ensure that customers always receive services that are appropriate for their situations and understand the risk that they are taking? Why is that an important question? Oh, my goodness. I mean, this, this is important from so many ways. When we're talking about the financial services industry, you know, this is so basic. KYC, know your customer, right? You, need, you are in, in very often like with ourselves. I mean, you're the fiduciary. You have become the asset owner. And so knowing your customer, knowing what's appropriate, knowing what to recommend, knowing their risk tolerances, this is hugely important. And back to the initial part of your question, the S, knowing people, understanding how you have to bring humanity back to finance is harder, much harder to measure, but critically important. Issues like income inequality, supply chains, labor, human capital in the global supply chains, and then demographics, these social issues, uh, we can actually start to empirically show that they are important material to the investment process. In fact, my market strategist, uh, Michael Garrity, has put out explicitly a piece of research about the S in global strategy global equity strategy. It's tough, but we can get there. Now, some of these questions go to the sort of opportunities, but also some of the disruptions that maybe are coming in some industries uh, around those opportunities. Like for electric utilities, you ask, how is the company addressing the growth of distributed renewable energy generation? How is the company affected by the decline in renewable energy prices and related advancements in distributed energy. Those are tough questions for utilities to deal with right now, aren't they? Well, not only is it a tough question, and you have to remember, it's not just important for utilities. That's important for the entire grid. It's important for the renewable companies themselves, too. We, we just put a report out called, what if electricity prices fall? Right Here's where the scenario analysis come in. We haven't seen that for a few decades, but it's not like it's never happened. And if it does happen... Well, what does that mean to the business models of not just the utilities themselves? What does it do to the business models of the, the solar companies? You know, when they're building in price escalators that maybe are not quite right based on the price of electricity, right? So my point is, it's all about the questions. And then the process by which you get to the answers. And then, by the way, it's also about the humility that you bring to the answers. Because I will tell you that if someone were to come into my office, an analyst, a portfolio manager, and pitch me on a stock and say, you know what, I've got it. I've got all the answers. Well, if you tell me you have all the answers, I pretty much will guarantee that you're either lying or you're stupid. And so let me hear the questions and tell me what you think the answers are and then ask more questions. So I, I apologize if that's a little uh, rude sounding. But it's the reality, and it goes back to the wisdom of Socrates, you know, how important the questions are. And some of the questions are about risk, and some of the questions are about opportunities. And the opportunities are, in some cases, driven by pretty significant or profound megatrends uh, in the macro environment. For example, you ask for apparel manufacturers. How is the company positioned to take advantage of the increased buying power in middle-income countries? And you ask for transport companies. How is the company positioned to supply mobility in the emerging megacities of the developing world? Those are questions that relate to 
new opportunities in the world economy that may not be well understood? Mm -hmm. And I love those questions because the reasons those questions are so cool is because they get to the future, they get to aspirations, and they get to opportunities that add to the revenue streams. I mean, think about where the value in most stocks is derived. It's derived from the future. It's not static. And so if you think about technology and innovation and entrepreneurship, and you think about which companies are reaching, frankly, literally for the stars, well, we don't have to talk about ESG analytics or, you know, sustainable investing just as risk mitigation, right? Still, there are a lot of people out there that argue that, yes, sustainable investing is a good risk tool, a risk management tool, but they just look at the risks. Let's talk about the opportunities and let's talk about innovation. So if you think about the potential, I mean, you know, in any company that you might not expect, think about the potential of the tobacco plant. You know, look at the tobacco plant as a manufacturing facility that actually has some highly interesting characteristics. You know, so one may say, no way, I'm not looking at tobacco, I'm screening that out. Um, because it's, you know, it's a risk, it's killing people. But someone else might say, well, wait a second, there's something interesting here that could lead to the production of healthful products. Oh, that's interesting. And then somebody might look at Lockheed Martin, which, um, you know, they might say, oh, no, I'm not looking at that, it's the defense sector. And by the way, I respect that. But some people might say, oh, wait a second, Lockheed Martin has some technologies that they can figure out how to filter water to a billionth of a millimeter. Oh my God, that kind of filtration technology is really interesting. And I apologize, I know I'm going to a different sectors, but I'm trying to make a point that the nexus of various sectors matters a lot. This isn't simple. So if we go to the transportation sector, how do you sift out technology and cybersecurity and materials science and uh, license to operate and community relationship and I mean how do you sift out just transportation you have to see the things in a mosaic well lest anybody think this is easy the food and <laughs> beverage question jumped out at me because it's how does the company assess rising concerns in the US about nutrition and health and I happen to know Pepsi, for example, CEO there made a big push to try to reposition the company around some of those issues. And frankly, shareholders, I think, preferred, you know, sugar water and potato chips. And they retreated a bit from that initiative, uh, maybe not for the long term, but at least in the short term. So some of these things don't always get rewarded in the stock market. How do you how do you deal with those kind of reversals? What I would say is this question goes right to the heart of a discussion of the long term versus the short term. Right. So a CEO uh, like Indra Nui, who is, uh, I think, should be applauded for having a long-term vision that speaks to really the aspirations of a society that looks for the ability to bring together the long-term and the short-term capital discipline, but still listening to the short-term needs of shareholders a hugely difficult position to balance both. Here, by the way, is exactly where we go to that shareholder alignment frontier. And there are going to be times when there's a big outrage, when activists and, and shorter-term investors are pushing and pushing uh, to not deploy capital towards what are arguably long-term really constructive opportunities. 
And so you have to really, uh, I think, applaud the CEOs that are able to hold firm to a vision. Uh, those CEOs, I would argue, need investors who are willing to kind of run cover for them and say, wait a second, let's talk about the opportunity and let's try to find those shareholders that um, are really looking long term. So whether it's the, you know, the Ingenuis or the Paul Pullmans um, or the Kurt Box of, of the BASFs of the world, the companies that are, are truly trying to think about what it could be, even though they face near-term challenges. It is hard. There's no easy answer, but I think it's critically important. And I know that there's enough long-term capital out there. And I also argue that to some degree, you, we shouldn't try to control you know, the short-term trading around the long-term. It's a different set of shareholders. And there are a few generalizations that we can make. But I would aspire to be the kind of banker, the kind of investor, the kind of advisor that empowers the CEOs that have a long-term vision and then surround themselves by the operating and executive staff that can earn the right to deploy capital the way they think they should be able to and then can attract the shareholders that have that same shared uh, view. Long-term, I think, is key there, and I just want to emphasize that. Long-term means that you look at risks out over a longer horizon. You look at what you might have to pay out. If you're a pension fund, you might have to pay that out over 25, 30, 50 years to, to, to pensioners, and so you need to think about the investments over that horizon. Does this get to the notion of fiduciary duty? Uh, you talked about CEOs, but also investors who are investing other people's money have to have a fiduciary duty to those investors. How is that notion of fiduciary duty changing in light of what we've just been talking about? You know, it's a, it's, it's a critically important question. And again, speaking as a fiduciary, right, what I think is that not only do you need to look at environmental, social, and governance factors systematically in the investment process, I would argue that you're breaking your fiduciary responsibility if you don't. And the, the question about the articulation of fiduciary duty in the law, in ERISA standards or any place else, I think there's been a problem of articulation. And I think the next phase of, of frankly, of finance is going to make it very, very clear that you must look at these factors. They are not detractors from financial uh, analysis and financial returns. And um, you're not offering the optimal advisory proposition if you are not systematically analyzing ESG factors. Erica, this has been terrific. Where does this go, do you think, in the long term? And you can choose what you mean by the long term. But, I mean, if the questions get asked, if the fiduciary responsibilities get clarified in the way you're saying, if money and capital starts to flow towards innovative solutions and, and new opportunities for sustainability, uh, you know, what does this look like in, in, in well, you decide what the long term is. Uh, it looks gorgeous. This is, it looks like what capitalism is supposed to look like. Capitalism remains the best system the world has ever known for driving prosperity. Capitalism is beautiful, and economics is poetry, and finance is magic. If we do those things right, 
all right? So every system has its issues and its problems, every political system, every economic system. But when it comes to capitalism, if you actually accelerate the velocity of money, okay, to companies and to asset managers and to those that know how to deploy it on behalf of the most massive societal needs ever, well, this is all good. But there's, there's some kind of first principles, places that we need to start. Again, I take it as capitalism still is the best system that we know. But then you have to start from a place of respect, all right? Respect what you don't know. In fact, respect the questions more than you respect the answers. You start from those places, and then you see the ability to move money to address huge issues, and there is demand to fix problems. And given that it's all about supply and demand, well, if there's demand for social impact at scale, we're not just talking about moving millions, and we're not just talking about moving billions. We're finally talking about moving trillions to address all those factors that we talked about, you know, climate change, infrastructure, education, healthcare, income inequality, I mean, you flip the economic pyramid to such a degree that you finally get the economic multiplier effect working. And you don't just need easy money from central banks. You actually put money to use as the tool that it is. And it is a tool to help drive global prosperity. That's capitalism for good. And I think that the, the long term can absolutely collide with the short term which is now, which is why I think the time is absolutely now for an increase in an understanding of what it is to systematically analyze environmental, social, and governance factors. Thank you, Erica Karp, CEO and founder of Cornerstone Capital Group. It's been a delight to talk with you. It's been a pleasure, and I thank you for having me. Okay, that was a great conversation that David just had with Erica Karp of Cornerstone Capital Group. And Imogen, what did you think that what she was saying about ESG as a meaningful uh, analysis tool? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Erica and what they're doing at Cornerstone Group. And I think that in terms of producing really substantive and meaningful research and moving the ball forward in terms of how we think about ESG, she's doing a really good job. I thought the stuff that she said about asking tough questions and asking the important questions was really valuable. And it goes to this idea that like, you know, ESG isn't just something that's soft and fuzzy. It's actually germane to what corporations do so long as you know how to ask the questions. However, I think that it goes further than that. And I think there is a need beyond just asking questions of the CFO or the CEO or management of corporations. There was a um, great journalist called Mark Pittman who used to work at Bloomberg, who was one of the people who really uncovered the subprime mortgage crisis. And he always used to say, you know, look not at what people say, look at what they do. And I think that that level of research and doing that level of due diligence and asking, you know, if people had asked the engineers who had worked at Volkswagen, what were they doing? What would the answers have been? Like doing real investigations maybe that's the next iteration of ESG. So that's not 
Erica's role in the conversation. But I think it's important to realize that that's what's going to be the big difference. David, what, what, what do you think about that? And, and based on what Erica said to you in, in your conversation? Well, I think that's absolutely true. And, and what's interesting is, you know, if E, S and G factors are going to be used as signals and proxies for long term outperformance, which is what some of the at least some of the research and, and analysis shows, then it obviously matters whether the factors that are going into those ratings are actually accurate. There was an interesting report that came out that showed that in recent years, VW, in its own corporate sustainability reports, had spent considerably less ink on touting its emission standards. And that whereas several years ago, they leaned quite heavily on it, in more recent years, they had been downplaying it, not not saying that they were bad, just not saying anything at all. And somebody's gone back and, and done a kind of content analysis of their last few years of reports and said, oh, we should have spotted this. I don't think they spotted it in advance. There'll be a lot of people looking back and doing the forensics now of how we can spot the next one. You know, there's been a big case made by the UNPRI, that that's the principles responsible investing in others, that ESG investing should not be a separate screen to your investing, but smart ESG investing is smart investing, right? And there's been a big push towards that. So is there a case be made that if people had done a thorough analysis and looked at the sustainability reports of a company like Volkswagen, that they would have been able to see, wait a minute, something's amiss here? I think hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And I agree, like, smart ESG investing is just smart investing, but by the same token, stupid ESG investing is just stupid investing. On the yeah. other hand, you know, people will always say, well, you couldn't uncover a fraud. Like, and it, there is a way in which, yes, certainly governance should be in, in governance and bad management, you know, treating employees badly, which, by the way, I'm not in any way suggesting that VW did, but there are things that can be leading indicators of a bigger problem. But you're never going to catch everything. And I think it's it's unfair to ESG to put that burden on it. And similarly, it shouldn't hold itself up as being some great panacea. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Impact Voices from Impact Alpha, your guide to the people, companies, and ideas that are transforming how capital is deployed in pursuit of a better, more sustainable world. For David Bank and Imogen Rose Smith, I'm Brian Walsh. We want to thank our producer, Isaac Silk. And please follow us on Twitter at, at @impactalpha and check us out at impactalpha.com. So long until next time. Thank you.